0: Refreshment from me! Yeah. Lipton iced tea. Here you go, guys. Cheers. 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 Nothing refreshes better than the good taste of Lipton iced tea. Mm. Magic. Guess it must be the quality teas they put in these flow through bags. That's jolly good. I guess we all like the
1: taste of Lipton. Of course. Why do you think they call us the tea men? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, pull up a chair and pour yourself a big, tall glass of iced tea. It's time for Good seats Still Available, our curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Yeah, it's our weekly little Excursion into uh, the forgotten realms of uh, pro sports, especially here in the United States, North America. We appreciate your finding us. My name is Tim Hanlon. Welcome to the proceedings. And uh, yes, it's time to talk about the New England team men probably uh, one of the, uh, the greatest uh, named uh, franchises in certainly NASL, North American Soccer League history, and maybe even in the realm of defunct sports altogether in the United States. Uh, And I will fight you on perhaps uh, it being one of the best ever logos uh, to ever grace uniforms in the the United States and North America. Uh, And uh, if you uh, are a soccer fan of uh, of any significant age, you will certainly remember, perhaps quite fondly, uh, this team known as the New England team men, uh, obviously uh, playing in the the northeastern region of the United States, Boston. A little bit, but uh, certainly regionally in Foxborough, and we get into uh, this the interesting story of this team of the North American Soccer League. Three years uh, it ran until it uh, moved to Jacksonville in 1980, uh, and under interesting circumstances. And we're not quite sure exactly did they start uh, in uh, uh, Jacksonville playing indoors before they played actually their first outdoor uh, season and match. We're not quite sure. But our guest this week, Steve Gans. Uh, helps us try to get to the bottom of all of it. Steve Gans, a name you may know if you're a soccer fan or uh, practitioner, uh, a name you may be familiar with. In 2018, Steve was uh, one of the a handful of candidates uh, running for the presidency of U.S. Soccer, the United States Soccer Federation, as it was uh, previously known as. Pretty much, it's more uh, commonly known as U.S. Soccer, and a uh, very uh, tense and uh, intriguing. Uh, presidential uh, campaign that was uh, for the future of the sport uh, in the United States, and arguably, uh, very much still uh, an open-ended uh, debate and conversation. Uh, Steve is uh, known uh, uh, more for uh, his uh, work as uh, as a uh, corporate lawyer, uh, well regarded and uh, highly sought after in various aspects of of soccer law, contracts, player uh, types of stuff. And uh, as we get into our conversation in a few moments, uh, a player uh, back in the day in the collegiate ranks and, and a little bit of the pro game, uh, we'll get into sort of that, that story. But interestingly, uh, our little hook into our conversation with Steve was his uh, earliest days, I think you could call it his first sort of professional taste of this game uh, known as pro soccer in the United States, was as a, uh, as a high school kid. Uh, working in the public relations department and the marketing team for this uh, team known as the New England Tea Men. Uh, why were they called the Tea Men? Well, we get into that. But uh, if you didn't remember, the uh, they were owned by the Lipton Tea Company, now part of Unilever, uh, and just you know a, a mere brand of that sort of gigantic conglomerate. But back in the day, Lipton Tea, uh, based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, of all places—a hop, skip, and a jump from where yours truly grew up little town called Hohokus, but I digress, uh, was, uh, you know, a company that was interested in this pixie dust known as the North American Soccer League. Uh, Warner Communications, certainly with uh, the New York Cosmos, uh, Gulf and Western uh, with uh, the Washington Diplomats. There were other. Other companies that kind of just sort of uh, jumped onto the old uh, proverbial bandwagon. But, you know, you know, uh, who knows what the uh, the marketing geniuses in the minds at uh, in the hallways uh, at corporate headquarters of Lipton Tea were thinking when they thought, hey, let's, you know, let's buy a North American uh, Soccer League franchise and and we'll make millions. Um, I'm not quite sure it wound up that way, but uh, one in one effort of corporate synergy. Uh, you heard that uh, little clip there that was an uh, an ad from 1979 we think and uh it was a uh, uh, majority voiced over by Kevin Cat Keelan yes the uh the 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 standout goalie for the New England team uh, and uh, uh his mates uh enjoying a nice uh, big pitcher uh, right after a game uh of Lipton ice tea and of course why not Uh, let's, uh, you know, make that corporate synergy work. And I will tell you that uh, this is a team that um, uh, probably punched above its weight in terms of memories, uh, its logo. Hey, it's jerseys. Uh, If you may remember, at least for the first couple of seasons, they literally had a T, the shape of a letter T uh, on their uh, uh, jerseys, uh, sort of yellow and uh, 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 red slash burnt orange. It was gorgeous, uh, uh, sort of looking logo that incorporated all those colors, light blue and white uh, as well, sort of the big schooner ship. And, and of course, the Boston Tea Party, that's sort of the uh, uh, the background of sort of why the name of the team, but it, but it's, they stood out and, and they really hit the NASL in 1978, one of six expansion franchises that year uh, to bring it up to 24 teams back then. Uh, and as we get into our conversation with Steve, uh, a really a good sense of perhaps uh, just a few too many teams uh, at that. Uh, but, boy, did they make uh, a splash their first season. Uh, they beat the Cosmos twice. Uh, you had uh, Mike Flanagan uh, lighten it up uh, and uh, I believe was the uh, most valuable player of the NASL that year, Mike Flanagan was. Uh, he only lasted one season with uh, with the team. Uh, he wound up going uh, back to uh, England. He had uh, led Charlton Athletic. Uh, As a a player, he was basically with the team in uh, on loan for 1970 and then went back to play for Crystal Palace and Queens Park Rangers, back to Charlton and uh, a few other uh, things, and also some uh, management of teams uh, relatively uh, uh, recently, too. Um, But uh, uh, Cat Keelan was part of this team for sure. Let's see. We had um, uh, uh, Ringo Cantillo, somebody we talked about uh, who played... With uh, the uh, Cincinnati Comets prior in the ASL was a he he was a, a a major presence in the American Soccer League. But Ringo Cantillo had a spell with the team in uh, Laurie Abraham's uh, uh, a whole bunch of great players. Brian Alderson, who you New Jersey Rockets MISL fans? Okay, well there there are many of them, but he was a player for that team later on. Uh, he was part of the mix uh, and on and on and on. Some great names uh, and uh, faces. Uh, that dominated uh, this team for three years, and uh, peripatetic, frankly, within the New England region. We get into that with Steve. But this is a team that uh, came after uh, a similarly wayward team known as the Boston Minutemen. Uh, that was actually uh, perhaps more the uh, early adjunct uh, for Steve into his uh, what uh, effectively became his uh, pro soccer ex- experiences. The Boston Minutemen played at, uh, let's see, it was probably five or six uh, different team, uh, different teams, different stadiums uh, in the Boston and uh, largely uh, wider New England area. Uh, Alumni Stadium uh, at Boston College, uh, Nickerson Field at Boston University, Foxborough Stadium, uh, Veterans Stadium in uh, Quincy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The teammen uh, had their own sort of issues uh, playing at least in the beginning at uh, Schaefer stadium, uh, uh, you know, which was brand new or relatively new, uh, uh, back then in Foxborough, Massachusetts, uh, essentially losing the opportunity to play and having to go back to Nickerson field again. Uh, and then, uh, going back, uh, to Schaefer stadium, uh, once again. So it was, it was, it's indicative of not only sort of, uh, uh, the the team men's sort of travails but also a uh, pro soccer's sort of waywardness i guess uh in the boston and new england uh, metropolitan area uh, frankly an issue that still lasts uh and is uh, pretty raw today uh to uh, new england revolution fans of the, of major league soccer uh this sort of uh, continued quest uh to finally hopefully someday maybe find a more uh boston centric or or within the city limits of Boston uh soccer specific stadium uh, as long as uh, I guess the Kraft family owns the uh the revolution I think it's going to be very hard to sort of uh, uh separate them from uh, Gillette Stadium where it's a uh, very cost efficient to uh to house that team uh in the home of the New England Patriots for sure uh, but uh it does speak to the uh, regionality of soccer uh, in the pro ranks uh, in the Boston metropolitan area and Uh, the, uh, frankly, just the difficulty of trying to find and create a soccer-specific venue uh, for a team in the New England region. And the New England team are our excuse to kind of get into that and a whole bunch of other stuff, Uh, we make lots of different stops. Yes, with the Minutemen, uh, the Cosmos certainly make an appearance. We talk about their move uh, and the debatable dates of when that sort of occurred from New England to Jacksonville, where they became the Jacksonville team men right up there in the, what are you talking about with things like the Utah Jazz, going from New Orleans, uh, keeping the name, but all that stuff. And we also sort of uh, uh, get into a little bit of, is it is T-Men one word or T-Men two words? Hint, it's uh, it's absolutely the latter, as um, uh, as uh, our uh, our sleuthing has discovered. Uh, all that and much, much more. Uh, Steve Gans, our guest this week, as we talk about the New England T-Men and a little bit of all those other things as well. Uh, A fun episode, uh, which you will enjoy uh, immensely, uh, as I did in uh, recording it uh, a few weeks back. First, a uh, little promotional announcement from our our sponsor this week at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Our pal Dean Mitchell in San Diego. Check him out at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And it is basically the place to find all kinds of great memorabilia, publications, uh, yearbooks and pennants and buttons and stickers and, and all kinds of stuff around various teams and leagues in the realm of pro sports. Hey, collegiately too. Uh, that uh, for whatever reasons are are now firmly ensconced in the where are they now department. And yes, a couple of great New England team end memories. There's a, a wonderful. Uh, issue of Soccer Corner magazine from August of 1978, attractively priced, almost mint condition. There's a great article in there about New England's team men uh, and some great pictures in there and uh, some strategies as to how they were going to sort of tackle, if you will, uh, the market, uh, how they're going to structure the team, a great full page uh, uh, picture uh, in all its black and white glory. Uh, Of Mike Flanagan, the uh, standout breakout star of that team in 1978, and the most most valuable player he was, Uh, just one of the many, many, many uh, items that you will find uh, across all kinds of teams and leagues. And yeah, there's been a sort of a a redo of the site. uh, Is some great um, uh, linkages to other products that you might be interested in based on your search. Your searches uh, uh, is a great way as a great visuals. Uh, to sort of navigate the site, um, it's just fantastic stuff, uh, and it's all there for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com. There are just treasures galore there. I'm just I'm looking at uh, uh, this uh, the the soccer corner magazine for the New England team in article, and I see some related products that I've never seen before. Like for example, the Vancouver Whitecaps fight song, 45 uh, uh, rpm record uh, in a beautiful sleeve. Who knew there was a Whitecaps uh, fight song? I did not. Um, but all kinds of great stuff. You will lose a ton of time, and you will probably part with more than a few bucks uh, at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And by the way, when you get ready to uh, uh, pony up uh, some PayPal or some Venmo goodness or a credit card or whatever you're going to use to pay, I don't think he takes crypto just yet, teen. But uh, who knows? Uh, maybe that's part of the next refresh of the site. Sportshistorycollectibles.com. Make sure you use the promo code GoodSeats, and uh, that will in- uh, entitle you to 15% off all of your purchases. That's so Once again, it's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, you will uh, not regret having visited it and make sure you bookmark it because Dean's adding new stuff just about each and every week. Thank you to Dean and, uh, and Sports History Collectibles for their sponsorship of this here little show. And uh, thank you for continuing to listen to this week's fine and wonderful discussion slash conversation with Steve Gans, uh, counselor, Uh, At large, uh, as we talk about not the law as much, not uh, legalities as much, but uh, some of the early days of his uh, soccer fandom and translation into his first taste of professional soccer in the United States, the New England team and the center of that conversation. Here it is. Please enjoy. I'm really interested to hear your origin story, because um, sure. I, I saw and I obviously have seen you uh, in U.S. soccer circles. I think for our audience mm-hmm. to understand, you were uh, you had you threw your hat in the ring for the uh, most recent U.S. soccer presidency.
0: Um,
1: yes. So, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So you're you're active in the sport. But I, I guess I want to dial it all the way back because I I didn't put the pieces together until I saw a just a just a tweet a couple of weeks ago. Soccer America's 50th anniversary, and here you are reminiscing about writing about this team called the New England T-Men, um, I guess right. it was a high school exploit of yours. So I had to reach out and say, hey, do you have any memories? And let's, do you want to reminisce about that team in particular? And maybe sort of you're hooking into soccer.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to reminisce about the t Yeah, a lot, a lot of stories around that time personally and uh, seminal, seminal experience in my life, for sure. Well, I mean, go I'm happy to go anywhere you want to go.
1: Yeah, well, so were, were you a player as a kid? You're, I'm assuming you're growing up in the Boston metro area. Were you? A, a, did you understand this Minutemen team that came before? How, what was your entree to all of this?
0: So my entree to the sport was um, my my father, who uh, escaped the Holocaust, and came over from Germany, and and brought this sport that everybody laughed at, um, you know, over here. Uh, you know, everybody in his circle. Um, you know, he brought it over with a passion, uh, and uh, when he first came here, he used to, uh, or first settled in Boston, he used to uh, take a train to New York just to go to like Randall's Island and see semi-pro games because um, there really, you know, there wasn't pr- pro uh, soccer or anything like that. And he loved the sport, and um, so he always exposed me to it. But notwithstanding that, uh, you know, he would take me to semi-pro games all the time and uh, around town, and. You know, and I liked it, but uh, I grew up a baseball player because, you know, this was a time in the 60s and 70s um, when the Red Sox, uh, you know, were, as they still are prominent, the Bruins were owned the town, the Bobby Orr era, you know, and we had the Celtics and also the Patriots, though the Patriots weren't as popular, but, you know, the, the Celtics and, and, and Red Sox, you know, have amazing... Um, you know tradition in you know uh, in a consistent way in the city but also the, the the halcyon days for the bruins um uh were were then uh, because everyone fell in love with bobby Orr. and so you know i played baseball mostly um i played all sports but baseball is a sport i pursued and really didn't play much soccer because there wasn't that much organized soccer but um you know, my dad would take me to the semi pro games. He would also take me to, you know, ballrooms at hotels where, where the only way you could see international matches were, um, where, where in, uh, hotels would show them on, on closed circuit TV. Um, and so I remember when I was a young kid seeing the 1970 world cup final between Brazil and Italy, you know, which was an amazing, um, thing to see, to see play and, um, and, and, a lot of passionate ethnic people who lived in the area, um, you know, uh, gesticulate and shout and inevitably there would be some sort of blackout within the game and they'd shout even more until it was fixed. Um, so I had those memories and, and it was, in, they were imprinted on me, but they didn't really, none of that really caused me to convert and give up baseball until interestingly, you say the Minutemen, um, when an NESL team came to town for the first time, in 1974, the Boston Minutemen. And after I went to the first game in person, so it was the best game maybe I had seen in person, or at least pro game I'd seen in person, though, though I had seen Pelé in an exhibition game at Fenway Park. Um, but that was, you know, friendly. And when I saw the Minutemen that first year and saw what was relatively high level soccer uh, to that point, um, uh, I was, I was, I was bitten myself and I just gave up baseball uh, and said, I'm going to, I'm going to really devote um, my playing uh, focus to soccer. And that was a decision I made. The other thing that was fortuitous was the coach of the Minutemen was a guy who lived in my town named Hubert Vogelsinger, who you probably heard of.
1: Oh, sure. Um, went to his, went re- to his soccer camp a couple of years myself. Yes. Oh, there you go. So, yes, and so did He gets I. up, he, he, gets up re- he got up really early. I couldn't get over that.
0: Yeah, you would have to run barefoot two miles. Nothing you could do because Stop of liability now. reasons anymore. Jeez. Yeah, did you go to the one in Connecticut? We probably went together. I, probably, um,
1: I think I did, yeah. One in Connecticut and one uh, maybe in uh, New York State somewhere, too.
0: Yeah, at the Taft School. That's that's ruined. So, you know, uh, Hubie was uh, the coach of, of the Minimini. He come from Yale. He was renowned because he had, along with his wife, written this book called The Challenge of Soccer. It was the first instructional book of any note. And um, I was lucky that we that we uh, met each other and he became my kind of soccer playing mentor where he took an interest in me me, and, 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 you know, I started, I mean, I played a little in my backyard or whatever, but, um, but, you know, starting at 13 is pretty late and and I was lucky he took interest in in me and nurtured me as a player. I mean, that's anywhere a late time to start, but whatever, however high, you know, high level I reached or however proficient a player I became is largely because of Hubie Vogelsinger, Hubert Vogelsinger. And um, so from there, I was, you know, all in. And um, so certainly I knew about the Minutemen.
1: And um, Well, before we, go, before we go off the Minutemen, tell me about sort of that, right? So you say, uh, well, here's a question that's, that you can un- unpack, right? Uh, which stadium did you go to for your first game? <laughs> that's a loaded question.
0: Yeah, yeah I, well, so you know all about that. That's a big deal. It was a, it was a Boston College alumni stadium, right? And, um, and they, the Minutemen did extremely well that first year, you know, for those days in, in the NASL, that was pr- prior to play. And you, um, you know, you had the example, the outlier of the Philadelphia Adams doing very well, but generally most clubs not doing doing that well. And, um, the Minutemen averaged about 10,000 fans a game, uh, at, at, BC alumni stadium. Um, but what, what happened was, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, the citizenry that lived around that stadium, um, I, I will say also from uh, my, my, my town, but not, not that my section of town, uh, did, did not want any pro events there and ultimately mobilized. And after that first highly successful year, the Minutemen were forced to, to move from BC Alumni Stadium and move to, um, to uh, uh, Boston University's Nickerson Field. Um, wherein that kind of first-year magic attendance-wide did not continue at the same level other than, uh, as you know, that was the year 1975 when Pelé was um, signed. And uh, in that particular game against the Cosmos, um, you know, uh, to a fault, there was a high attendance, but they oversold the stadium capacity. And I'm sure you know this story that there were so many fans in the stands that they spilled over to the sidelines. And after Pelé scored uh, uh, a goal, they, they broke lines and engulfed him. And the game had to be uh, called off. Police had to call the whole game off and uh, clear everyone from the field. So even the biggest crowd at a minimum game in 1975 at BU turned into fiasco. So I, I expect that's why you asked the question about the stadium. Yeah.
1: Well, but also too, I know in 76, even it got worse because there was sort of a, they became almost vagabond like, uh, because they couldn't sort of stay. And they were financial problems. So, but 75 though, um, I guess the peripatetic part was like, where I was going with that. Um, but I, I, I remember seeing, uh, some, some video. I think it was a, a game on a local PBS station. Kyle wrote is like a, as an announcer and, uh, that field, um, looks like it really stretched the boundaries of what the soccer field would be. I mean, literally, it was it was all green, looked like very, very hard turf. And um, I don't know, it just didn't look uh, comfortable, shall we say, as a soccer field. That news. Yeah, it's
0: funny. My, my kids have trained there at, at, at BU, and, and um, there have been a lot of teams, soccer teams there. I'm not saying it can't be a successful venue, but for whatever reason, it hasn't been. And I have a friend who's an urban developer who – son was on our, uh, my son's club team. And, and when we trained there a few times, he said, it doesn't have, it, it doesn't have the right aura, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, the flying, thanks. I'm not pronouncing it right, but flying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and so it, the teams never made it there. Although, you know, BU's park is actually Boston Braves, um, the former NL t- national league team, you know, the prior to the M- Milwaukee Braves and Atlanta Braves. So it is a stadium with a lot of history, but it, it hasn't worked out for soccer. What happened in 76, and you really know your stuff, I, I, Tim, I am really impressed. Yes, they moved to Quincy Vet, Veterans Stadium, which was really a high school uh, field. And that's because the owner ran into both financial and legal trouble in his personal life. Um, and ultimately, uh, and I'll never forget this, I was at a game and, and uh, you know this guy started to sell off all the players. Because they still had a, a, a you know a, a very good roster. You know, uh, Eusebio was there in '75. Antonio Samoas, Shep Messing, and I and and I sat. You know, I went to a game loyally in '76 in Quincy, Mass. You know, at this you know it was a it was a good a good five to ten thousand seat stadium, but yet a high school stadium. And lo and behold, who's sitting next to me? Who sits down next to me is Shep Messing, because he's sitting out the game. And he's going to be, you know, sold to the Cosmos the next day. So I sat with Shep and his wife. So that was, that was kind of interesting when I was 15. And, um, you know, he got into major problems and, you know, uh, uh, criminally. And at the end of '76, you know, the, the the he sold off these guys and the Minutemen were uh, they folded? Uh, Hubie went on to I think Team Hawaii. Um, all the top players were gone, and I was brokenhearted. And so uh, I actually wrote at age 15 to Phil Woosnam, uh, the commissioner, and said, look, look, this just happened in Boston, or it's happening. Maybe I did it while it was still going on. It has nothing to do with Boston as a soccer town. It has to do with the mismanagement. Let me tell you what happened. Uh, and, um, uh, and uh, you know, this, this is a great soccer city, and you, you ought not to – let this happen without league intervention. And so he sent one of his top guys in to meet with me. And, you know, from that, you know, it didn't save the Minutemen, but from that moment I was, um, uh, again, uh, committed to making the sport work in the country and and, and in my city. So that was the Minutemen. And it informed, you know, it informed my relationship. And ultimately I transferred colleges to to be with with the team. And so that's, that's the Minutemen.
1: Interesting. So um, so t- two things to unpack there. Number one, I mean, you mentioned <clears throat> some of these players, right, in particular, Sabio, right, who arguably was one of the or certainly on the downslope of, of being one of the, the generation's uh, greatest players worldwide. Right. And this is uh, a guy who I think only more in retrospect sort of was uh, remembered and further appreciated by the American fans and, and, and Messing, Shep Messing, right, who. Uh, we've been trying to get on this show. He sort of says he wants to be on it, and then he doesn't, and then he does, and he doesn't. Someday we'll get him, hopefully, because I've got his biography that I uh, just—I've got all kinds of dog-eared uh, notes on from. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, these are two of some of the, the the better players in the league at that time, and and to see them both being part of the uh, the fire sale—I mean, that's that's a real indication that things are you know falling apart pretty quickly.
0: That's right. That's right. And they, the league didn't intervene early enough. And and the owner really, I think, I believe he went to prison because he had, you know, he had um, uh, uh, securities fraud and and or uh, Ponzi like charges against him. Ultimately, um, and you know that, that that bespoke part of it. But maybe they could have found a, a, another owner that could have saved the team. But you know, and so that that you know, when you see the sport fail and it doesn't fail or franchise fail, and it doesn't fail for any reason having to do with um, the city's uh, interest in the sport or the sport itself, then you become more committed
1: to it. But it does lead to my other question, and this will be the hopefully the uh, somewhat uh, uh, nice and clean segue into into the team men story, and, and for you too, um, is I, I, what I think still exists kind of today with today's uh, MLS revolution, right? And that is Boston specifically, and the Boston region generally, And it's seeming inability to um, uh, create, find, uh, uh, you know, settle an actual decent uh, soccer friendly stadium, um, which, you know, is obviously part of the MLS business model. But uh, as we'll see with the T-Men in a minute and the the Minutemen clearly as well, for a bunch of reasons, finding a place to play conveniently, we've talked about this with – Andy Crossley about the WUSA and, and women's professional soccer and stuff with the, the Boston teams there, too. It just seems like it's always been uh, a challenge to kind of sort of circle around a venue that is friendly, uh, well-located, uh, fan-appealing uh, uh, for the sport of soccer. It just seems like some of those uh, issues that were sort of popping up with the Minutemen and later the team men just seemingly haven't really solved themselves yet for whatever reasons.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is true that there is not a readily accessible, um, ideal uh, stadium currently. In other words, Fenway is a great venue, although there are field, as you can see with Liverpool's friendlies, um, you know, there, there are field um, length issues, but, you know, friendly, obviously Fen- Fenway would be a, a great venue. That's where Pelé played, played his exhibition, by the way, but, you know, that that's not uh, generally Abs absent, absent FSG owning a team going to be available. Um, you know, Foxborough uh, has, has the location and, 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 and size issues, you know, except BC's not available um, generally because of the citizenry and the bar and other t- things. And, and B, we we talked about it. You're right. Um, the reason though, for the fact that it's not a soccer specific stadium is more complex and we can get into it. Um, uh, uh, having, having, uh, nothing to do with fan interest in it, but more about um, I think the history of how these stadiums have been built in other cities, other cities willingness to um, give massive tax breaks or otherwise to build them. Um, If you look at MLS uh, and most of the early ones, they were, you know, um, uh, in, 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 you know, the Colorado Rapids didn't do it in Denver. They did it in commerce city, uh, Chicago Fire didn't do it in Chicago. They did it in Bridgeview. And, you know, those are cities that decided they needed to, do, to give subsidies. And, you know, Massachusetts is a very self-possessed um, place, right, which, um, uh, you know, feels that it's, it's leading in sports, but it's also leading in uh, arts, education, finance, uh, medicine. And, you know, th- those go into to other dynamics about whether owners can exact – um, subsidies from communities so but we can get into that if you want that well, has nothing well, no, to really yeah,
1: it's cer- it's certainly an issue right and and this it, by by no means is that pollyannish right thinking that oh we're you know just get a stadium and everything will be fine i mean i've clearly right it, and then you know look you're talking to somebody who you know looks at mls getting to and we're almost now at 30 teams now and i don't want to call it peak mls but i mean you know I, we see what happened with the uh, with the super league which i guess was going to be our wrap-up talk but i mean you know money and sports right i mean it's frankly, in that order. And I don't necessarily want to go back 40 years and just reminisce about the proverbial good old days, because, you know, they, they were certainly not perfect. But make no mistake, you know, big and business, capital letters, right? Um, and, and I, you know, we can we can take pot shots at MLS. It's been around for 25 years. It's centrally controlled. It's not, you know, uh, there's no uh, pro-rel and all that kind of stuff. But, but the reality is, you know, I, there's a foundation there, right? And and but, but stadiums at any cost, right? I mean, I Ask the people at Bridgeview. I've been I've been through that as a Chicago Fire fan, and I fell nice. out of being a Chicago Fire fan. I mean, no, nope. it was 45, 45 miles each way for me in, nor- in the northern suburbs of Chicago to go to go watch Fire games. But I did it for three years, and you know it was. But uh, you know it it wasn't the right location. It, there's a lot lots of things, but you know Bridgeview lost a ton of money, and they're still paying that off, right? So, not at any cost, right. I guess.
0: Correct. To my point, and most of those communities lost a ton of money. And, and as I say again, and I kind of say proudly, this is a much more self I shouldn't say much more, but this is a self-possessed community that is not going to, I mean, and you'll see even with Gillette Stadium, is not going to give uh, owners massive financial uh, uh, support and tax breaks under threat of moving the team. Um, and, and so where you see it differently is, is in those communities that, that absolutely wholly to, define themselves by their sports teams. This is a sports mad town, Don't, you know, uh, Reds, at this point, Patriots as well, Patriots, Red Sox, uh, Celtics and Bruins. Um, but, but, the, but, but on the other hand, this is a town that also defines itself by medicine and, uh, um, uh, academics, education, colleges, and, um, uh, finance and arts. And so that's, that's the difference. Gillette had to be built privately and, and, and likely absent again, a a desperate community, the soccer specific stadium will have to be built that way here too. Now there is a limitation here, which is to say, you know, it's a, a built up area and finding the right space, uh, is not easy. Ideally, I, you know, all things being equal, a soccer-specific stadium, grass field, in a good location, is ideal. But I still subscribe to the theory that a well-run team um, in a big stadium, uh, you know, in a grass field, uh, is fine. Uh, is, it works. The, 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 the revolution in their first year um, did fine uh, at Foxborough Stadium. The T-men... In 1968, drew you know, 30,126 fans head-to-head against, you know, in a, against a Red Sox game um, you know, at a big stadium. Seattle, and they don't even have grass. You see what the Seattle Sounders do now and, and Atlanta United on turf. And um, so uh, I don't think you absolutely need uh, a soccer-specific stadium in order, in order to make it um, successful here. This is a great town uh, that loves soccer. It's just got to be run right, um, you know, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the failures of the past are, are, a, um, are a referendum on, you know, particular situations um, and, uh, and, and also, you know, in some sense, the sweeping results of, of the league. Uh, but, um, you know, I've always believed uh, this is a, an amazing soccer town to wit, you know my my involvement in the World Cup 94 bid effort and and how um the community supported both that effort and
1: um the ultimate game so anyway sure well, yeah i went to i went to a few of those games too including uh, the maradona uh, game slash debacle but oh yeah you were at his final goal too that's great but digress but but the uh, the um uh, but this is also so that part of it right so that stadium thing it's also uh, interestingly um not unique to soccer in this story, right? Because the Boston then, be, then New England Patriots had their issues too, going from the AFL into the NFL, and and frankly, the origins of Schaefer Stadium, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a kit uh, based and uh, a relatively simple structure at that. I'm being charitable. Uh, is um, it's also indicative of of some of the stuff. I mean, it is the hub, right? But it's also recognizing that. Um, but it's sort of a marriage of convenience too, I ultimately, but I, I, am sort of getting ahead. So 76, yep. the team is basically gone, gone right? Dissolved. Right. You're brokenhearted. Yep. You're in that impressionable period of yep. time as an all American sports fan and, and, and yep. enthusiast and player and stuff. And you, you had a lot of vested interest in this team. Um, right. what happens after your dealings with, um, uh, uh, the NASL, uh, senior executive or two and, and what's the path to get to 1978 when all things sort of seem brand shiny and new again, tell me about sure. 77 and the intervening, like what's happening there and how does this you're talking, sort of. Are you talking
0: about with me or soccer in Boston? Both. So, okay. So, you know, soccer in Boston, you know, there wasn't much to speak of. Um, that was a dormant, dormant year. Um, obviously it was a, a huge year, um, you know, for soccer in this country because of Pelé's uh, critical mass impact and, you know, 77,691 fans at the Meadowlands for a big game against Fort Lauderdale and the Cosmos averaging, you know, well over 40,000 fans a game. And, um, you know, that year. And so, you know, I personally, I made a lot of, you came to games in Boston. I, I made a lot of trips to the Meadowlands that year, um, but there was, there's no team to, to speak of in terms of me personally um, I guess two things of note, I mean, it continues to hopefully develop as a player and, 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 um, you know, in school and, and, uh, under Hubie's, um, you know, periodic guidance, cause, uh, you know, he was still instructing me from afar when he went to, to Hawaii and, um, uh, but personally, I guess two things. One was I, I, I had in, um, I think 76, I had been chosen by, um, a company, uh, it was called Bacanta that you, you wouldn't know, but it, it, was the, it was the United States representative for Puma, um, uh, which in those days uh, after Adidas, or Adidas and Puma were the two big brands. Nike wasn't the biggest brand yet, certainly not soccer. And I got chosen by um, Bacanta to be kind of their Nash, national um, youth representative uh, for Puma, which meant basically that they would fly me to their uh, – offices in Elmsford, New York, um in a in a, like a propeller plane that made me sick and scared every time. But um uh to advise them, you know, about soccer and about other sports too, about which athlete they should sign. Um and in particular about soccer, which which uh but even, you know, as as to someone like Ralph you know, Frazier or Reggie Jackson who are their athletes, you know, they wanted to get the young person's um input. So that, you know, that kept me involved a lot. Um and the other thing is, uh, I, I, I wrote to Soccer America. Um, now, when would that have been? It would have been in 77, I believe, when Canalia was signed. And what happened, and I don't think Lynn Burling or Paul Kennedy object to me saying this, but basically what happened was, you know, they're based on the West Coast, and uh, Canalia was signed, I, I believe, in 77. Tell me if I'm wrong. But in his first I think he came, game... I think he came
1: in the middle of 76 when they were still in Yankee Stadium that year.
0: Oh, Okay. So it was 76. So, so maybe I didn't start writing for them until 77, but I can't tell you, but, but so when he came and I, and I don't doubt you're right because you know, your stuff, um, uh, when he came in 76, six, six, though, it was quickly. And they won their first game six to nothing and soccer America reported the box score as six to nothing. And, and two of the goal, you know, there were four goals scored by, Variety of players, and two of the goals were scored by um, they reported it as Koikendel, and and they had a player named Kurt Koikendel as a backup goalkeeper. Yeah, and I wrote them and said, Hey, you know, you've you obviously got no presence at Cosmos games, you know, cannot and you took it off the roster. Um, uh. you know it was Giorgio canalia and and lynn burling lynn burling wrote me back and said yes steve we're trying to improve our east coast presence you know thanks thanks you know thanks for pointing it out how would you like to submit an article um and frankly since i was still a high school player i do not believe i do not believe i did it in 76 it probably was 77 but i i i submitted a uh uh, and I covered the uh, division one high school. My, my team didn't make it division one high school, um, soccer, uh, championship, Eastern mass championship, and wrote an article on it and submitted it. And lo and behold, they wrote it. So, um, so that, and I really truly believe, although I, I can't, those articles you saw, I don't even, rem- you know, the, on the team and one, uh, uh, you know, I didn't remember until they sent, sent them to uh, put them on Twitter. Uh, but, um, you know, soccer America did, but, um, So that was 77 for me. I, you know, still playing and developing the Puma thing. And then the, um, and then, you know, becoming, becoming a writer, I say in quotes for soccer America. And then, and then of course, big, you know, the big bridge to 78 when, when the NASL expanded, you know, was, was so um, excited about its success expanded probably too quickly, but expanded by 33% uh, from, you know, 18 to 24 teams. And, one fell swoop with you know the Portland Timbers being owned by Wirehauser by and and you know the Team N being owned by Lipton T. but we had a team back in Boston which was was
1: thrilling, right? How, how did you how did you find out about uh, this Team N thing? Because it it, it um, if I remember correctly, <clears throat> it was pretty hastily assembled or, or or from announcement to to first game. Um, how did, did you find out about it? Just through the grapevine or were you? part of the mix at all or was it because of your quote-unquote soccer america press credentials and all that i guarantee it got you into and all that stuff uh how did you you know how did it hit your radar and and what was the buzz around it and were people weary or excited relative to that of the minutemen prior
0: i you know i think i think first of all i'd say people were excited because this idea that corporations would be involved that they would they would back it and they wouldn't have the um you know the the risk of this solo, solo, solo investor who had been a sole investor, who had been the Minutemen, um president who turned out to be a, a crook. So there, there would be, um, and that's not too strong a word because he, I believe he went to federal prison. And so the, uh, the reality is that there was excitement. I cannot honestly, I mean, I, I maintain my connection to the uh, NESL front office because of was, was still the commissioner. And, the senior executive who um, he sent in to meet with me, you know, was still um, in contact with me, whether I cannot honestly remember at all, whether I got early word of it, either from that or, you know, so-called journalism, my journalistic uh, credentials. But I will tell you that whenever I found out about it, you know, I was very enthused and um, either made contact with or was contacted by, um, you know the team end pretty quickly in this case by their um, their PR director a guy named Vince Casey a guy um, who uh, I very much admired uh, um, who you know contacted me and you know brought me you know the 17 but you know brought me in on a part-time basis to do some exciting stuff and um, so how it all happened I can't fully remember but I, I certainly was excited and and jumped on it and was involved pretty quickly.
1: What what did you learn once you sort of got into the mix there uh, about uh, the organization, uh the stadium setup, uh, their approach to to talent, all that kind of stuff. I mean, did this seem a little bit more professional so to speak given the last year of the, of the Minutemen that you knew about? Um Yeah, it, Lord it, knows it, the it, logo it, was fantastic.
0: Yeah, it absolutely um It absolutely did. Uh, It absolutely did Um, uh, um, seem extremely exciting uh, because of the backing behind it, the professionalism, the players they were going to bring in. Because, as you know, there's nothing I can tell you that you don't know. um, Those were the days where the English League was shorter and you could bring players in on loan you know, a, a, of, you know, a huge name or a huge club. And, um, and, and so the types of players, you know, as you, you remember Kevin Cat Keelan from Norwich when Norwich was a, 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 a you know, a much more prominent team than now, um, not on the edge of the first division. And, you know, players like that, that was extremely exciting. Um, they also gathered up, um, you know, top uh, uh, American players or players from the Americas like Ringo Cantillo who, you know, became actually a, a very close friend um, to me. And I think we actually kind of both mentored each other. You know, he mentored, mentored me as a player and.
1: You yeah. Know, I mentored he, he, was, him. he was a star in the ASL, right? This was a step up for him, I guess, in, in terms of pro, right? Yeah. He,
0: he was a star in the ASL, but um, he also, I did believe he came from a stint, short stint with the NASL, but he was on the Costa Rican, I think national team, well, actually at least the youth national teams, um, but just a great person and a, and a great player. Um, so I, you know, again, the initial the initial um, impressions were unbelievable, you know, in terms of finances and commitment. Truth is, though, early on, you know, uh, th- th- you could see that there were some chinks in the armor that, you know, that um, having a club largely run from Anglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, um, would uh, uh, have some opportunity cost to it uh, in terms of um, attenuation, and of course, not being, not really understanding how soccer works. So, um, And you by, know, I for, remember for our
1: audience, Englewood Cliffs is, uh, was the home of, um, Lipton Tea, I guess, then, uh, later abs- 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 subsumed into, I guess, Unilever and other things and stuff. But yeah, so, so you're saying the team was literally managed corporately there and not locally in the Boston area, huh?
0: No, I'm, I'm not literally saying that. There was a general manager named Bob Keating who, who came from sports, but did, didn't, didn't know soccer, but that's fine to get a good general manager. Um, uh, and then, uh, Vince Casey, who's, you know, he went on to became, uh, I think, you know, New York Rangers and, and, uh, NHL and, you know, really highly respected guy. No, they had, they had a good, uh, front office, uh, in fact, but things would be outsourced to, um, or, 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 or demanded to be by the corporate people done from, um, Um, Englewood Cliffs that really hurt. For instance, uh, what I remember is, uh, and boy, you're jogging my memory, but they would do their advertising for the the team from their own advertising department in Englewood Cliffs. And I'll never forget uh, pulling my hair out and, and going to the general manager. Again, I was 17, but, but, you know, they allowed me to do this or, and, you know, and, and they would either run ads for a game, you know, the morning of the game or the day after the game or they, or they, you know, they say buy two, buy two boxes of Lipton tea and, um, uh, you know, redeem it for half price ticket for the, for the team end game. Uh, but they'd run the ad in the, you know, the, the food section or something like that. And I can't tell you it was literally that, but it was stuff that bespoke attenuation and being out of touch. So the, you know, there, there were those kinds of things that would give you pause a little bit. But certainly, that first year in 1978 was largely a dream year, right? Um, as I say, you know, 30,126 fans for the Cosmos game, um, uh, 21,000 fans against Detroit Express, you know, with Trevor Francis, uh, Fort Lauderdale Striker. You, you know, we we would get some great, great crowds that first year. The enthusiasm was um, spectacular. Um, but it you also did,
1: it also didn't hurt to have, have hey had a very competitive team, very English and Scottish and UK sort of centric and stuff. But I I remember seventy eight the seventy eight season as a Cosmos fan. Uh, just like all, almost overnight, the team were like a dreaded rival. I mean, they, I think if I'm not mistaken, the game that they came to Giant Stadium, they um, I think it was on the national feed that game, the TVS game of the week, and and. I think we, I think Cosmos lost and stuff, or, or it was a very sort of bitter kind of series. But it happened literally just kind of overnight.
0: Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was tremendous. Uh, yeah, there was. I mean, that that hoped for effect, whether or not the league expanded too quickly. Uh, initially, signs were really good, and that that was that was a magical, year. just like '74 for the the first year of the minimum. '78 was a magical year for the team, and I could I couldn't have been happier. Couldn't have been happier. And they and they. You know, Vince Casey, you know, gave me a part-time job. You know, still, again, in high school, but a part-time job in the front office. But amazingly, he made me the game official scorer, which, like, for a 17-year-old to uh, be deciding who gets assists and stuff like that, um, you know, and and being the one filling out the score sheet and and uh, uh, you know, awarding assists or de- you know, deciding that and uh, uh, was. You know, more than a dream come true. Plus, they put me on their junior team, which really sounded great. But all it meant was I used to be able to go out to Foxborough once in a while and train with the first team, which was uh, again, uh, um, I was a very happy young man.
1: It must be amazing. Well, give yeah. me give me a sense of uh, who do you remember from a from a player and coach perspective that uh, that stood out perhaps, uh, personalities, uh, uh, you know, and, and then also too, I want to maybe separately. Uh, I'm really intrigued at sort of this Schaefer Stadium thing, because I I don't think people kind of remember, and obviously there's a lot of reasons maybe to forget sometimes what Schaefer Stadium really was and wasn't, right? Um, I'm really curious to hear sort of the, shall we say, fan experience, the location, all that kind of stuff relative to this new shot at uh, NASL glory, so to speak.
0: Sure. Um, The people who stand out stood out. I mean, obviously the coach, Noel Cantwell, Dennis Violette, who, you know, uh, was his assistant coach and Dennis Viollet, you know, the Manchester United legend, and you know, had, had survived the the horrible plane crash where where most of the Manchester United team, you know, had had died in uh, in Munich, and um, you know, so they came in with with tremendous reputations, um, um, and you know, the the players uh, obviously, you know, when I would train with them, I used to be able to dress and shower with them in the the locker room, so you know, to Uh, to be with, uh, you know, Kevin Kat Keelan in particular, um, you know, stood out Ringo, uh, again, became a close friend. So I, I stuck with him as much as possible. You know, the guys were, uh, were largely cordial to me, but also, you know, when you're not literally one of the team, some of them put you through your paces. Um, you know, that happened to me, you know, later in the, my, my actual pro time with the Baltimore Blast, uh, in 1984 and, uh, of the MISL. And so, um, you know, the only one I really got close to was Ringo. Uh, and I would say the other players, um, you know, uh, Patty Powell, right. Isn't that his name? I, I believe. Um, um, now you got, uh, me. yeah, no, no, no. So, uh, you know, Ke- Kevin Keelan, Mick Flanagan, oh my God, you know, came from Charlton, um, and uh, those guys were memorable. You know, the English guys again were mostly cordial, but sometimes would, you know, do their own, their own thing to make sure you, you weren't literally part of it. You might get an extra elbow, you know, out there in the field. Um, and uh, you know, but I would say mostly Mick Flanagan and um, uh, and and uh, Kevin Keelan of the English players, and a guy named Chris Turner stood stood out. Um,
1: well, let so. Me, so before we get to the stadium thing, so this, I mean, Flanagan obviously was a quick standout, right. Uh, from the earliest get-go. Um, I just, I, I'm, it, it seems to me like the team, and maybe you don't remember the specifics of this. I certainly don't, but there, it seemed like it was a very, very short time between the team was sort of announced and, uh, you know, given the sort of the green light to, it having to hit the field uh, in, I guess, April of that of that year. Do I have this right? It was like maybe like four months, perhaps? Something along those lines to get it going? I don't know if you know that or yeah, not. Yeah, no,
0: it, it was very quickly. And I, I did see, uh, there's only one article I remember my first paragraph on, um, and it wasn't the one one of the ones they posted, but the ones they posted, it's interesting, one of them was like about that. Of course, they didn't post the whole thing. I could probably get it from Mike W. at Soccer America but Mike Wittaya, but, um, you know, it was about, I think that article was about, you know, team and quickly signed players and all that. And there was the picture of, I think it was Cantwell with, and I just verified it was, it's Patty Powell, Colin, Patty Powell. Um, and I think that's a picture of them signing. And I think you're right. It happened very quickly, something like four months. Um, so um, yeah, you are right. It, it came together very quickly.
1: And and how about how about the stadium? I mean, I think also people quickly forget too. You mentioned Mike Flanagan earlier. He was he was the mas he was the NASL's MVP of '78, right? So this you know that didn't hurt having that sort of fr- from the get go. How about how about this stadium? Because I think most people would say uh, it, it's convenient. Uh, it was there. Uh, I, I'm not sure people would sort of call it the most fan friendly, or or maybe maybe I'm applying. Uh, modern day uh, conveniences to the reality of what existed in
0: 1978. Well, here's how I, I, I put it: the whole issue of Soccer Specific Stadium was not, um, you know, was not a reality then. And um, so, I, again, I, I, I don't think the large capacity of it was at all alienating. I think you're absolutely right that the that, that Schaefer Stadium, being you know, as built for the Patriots. Was a minimalist stadium. Yes, there were 60,000 seats, but um, you know, all but a relatively few, maybe 5,000 in the aggregate, five or six thousand, were were bench, were you know, were benches and not chairbacks. So yes, it was always a minimalist stadium. And there's the famous story of the first Patriots game there, uh, uh, an exhibition game against the New York Giants, where the you know the traffic jam going down Route One to get there. You know, had people getting there late in the second quarter and the bathrooms overflowed. So it, yes, it was a minimalist stadium, but I don't view it as, you know, people have become used to it. I don't view it as a bar from people coming um, to, to the games, uh, you know, and again, a better choice than BU because, you know, Boston university stadium, um, you know, it was on the green line of, of what we call the T the public transportation right in Boston uh, but too small a stadium and also, you know, just didn't work. So I don't view it um, uh, uh, as being played at the big stadium as being a problem. Again, the, 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 the attendance there were, were were fantastic that first year. You know, if we thought the Minutemen, you know, four years earlier, getting averaging 10,000 was good, you know, here we were getting, you know, over 30,000 and, and 21,000. You know, twenty thousand for games, and an, another game, I think twenty-four thousand. Not every game was like that, obviously, but um, uh, but uh, I don't I don't view the stadium itself as 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 at that time a bar to fans coming if they wanted to see good soccer, and they came certainly for the big games.
1: For for those who are not sort of familiar with the New England area, the Boston area, and stuff, I the 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 the, the New England quote unquote moniker, right, is I I, I don't. I'm, Here's my sort of ignorance showing, um, and it shows often, by the way, uh, is it, sort of the uh, uniqueness, the double-edged sword, I guess, of that sort of regional name and and approach. Because it's not quite Boston, it's not quite Providence, it's not quite in between, but it is all of those things and none of those things. Um, and having a stadium that's literally, I guess, geographically quite in the middle of that sort of defined region – uh, from i guess from a marketing perspective based on what you remember and now what you've since learned i mean is does that help or hurt or hinder cuz you know the stadium itself is not really close to a you know a, a true major metropolitan area without a drive right and i don't know if that helps or hinders either the the uh the team in this case or frankly subsequently um or maybe in that region it doesn't really matter or maybe it does i don't i don't know
0: well, if we're, if we're talking about the T-Men, we're not talking about the revolutions. All right, let's talk about the t Let's start there. let's talk about the T-Men. I don't really think it, it, it hindered it too much. Um, the issues people talk about today it, it just weren't the same then. In theory, in theory, you know, again, people um, were willing to go if they were interested. You know, uh, like is, I think, 22 miles from, you know, where, where I live in Newton and, and, and not um, – You know, not a bar. Um, In theory, uh, if you drew from Providence, and in theory you would because it's a good soccer community and an ethnic community. And I say in theory again because sometimes if the quality of soccer is not good enough, um, ethnic soccer aficionados will affirmatively reject going to these games, and and they'd rather watch, you know, piped-in games from their home countries on closed circuit, you know, at their their clubhouses, you know, uh, of their social clubs but in theory, Providence is attractive in theory, you know, it's, it's closer to uh, new Bedford and fall river where there's a big Portuguese community and that becomes relevant in 1980 and a big mistake that the team did uh, made when they were back, um, at, at, you know, Foxborough Schaefer stadium, but I don't want to jump ahead. So I don't think if we're talking about 1978 first, um, I don't think it was a bar.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, describe for me sort of what sort of happens after 78, because it was a magical start for sure. But Mike Flanagan doesn't come back, and that's just the least of the worries, I think, or, or certainly a, a, one of them. Right, right.
0: Yeah, Mike, Mike, Mike Flanagan, uh, or Mick Flanagan, as he was called, You know, he came from Charlton at the time. Charlton was in the second division, but he, uh, I think, led the league in scoring, like you said, and was MVP and became a local folk hero here, and he didn't come back. But the, really you've got it right again. Uh, that's, that was the least of the problems. The big problem was, um, uh, and while I'm an attorney, I'm not a real estate attorney, but what I can tell you is that, that, um, uh, part of, uh, Schaefer stadium, Foxborough stadium, uh, was, was, um, built evidently on a tiny part on land, uh, owned by a harness race horse track, um, and, um, a person bought that, uh, that, h- uh, horse race track, um, guy named Eddie Andelman, who was a big, uh, like, you know, he's a, he's a businessman, but he was a big, uh, sports, uh, and actually break, uh, um, un- um, kind of ahead of his time sports talk show host here in Boston. He had a show called the sports huddle, but he, he was a, he was a, he was a pretty hard driving businessman and, uh, he basically he told Lipton T uh, that he wouldn't let the team play in, in uh, Schaefer Stadium in 1979 unless they paid him a uh, right, presumably for what's called an easement, a right to use uh, another's uh, property or access through that property. And um, Lipton T felt that um, uh, the price he was asking was exorbitant um, and, and blackmailish, and they said no um and so because um they by that dispute were kind of barred from using the whole stadium um they found another venue for 1979 and lo and behold it was Boston University's Nickerson Field and that actually so there you go they're in the desirable you know Boston metropolitan area uh, you know Boston area on the on the green line of the T that goes right by BU um and yet going to that stadium hurt tremendously, um, and the team lost a lot of that momentum. 1979 was a um, reversal, uh, a fortune for the team. And by the way, part of it having to do with that, part of it having to do with lose not getting back a lot of their uh, star players from 78, but also part of it having to do with in my opinion, one of the sem- seminal uh, developments in the league that ultimately uh, killed the NASL, um, and that is the ill-advised calling of a player strike at the beginning of the 1979 season from which momentum was lost. Um, so, yeah, 79 wasn't a great year for uh, the team in Boston, Boston area, or you know, largely for the NASL as compared to 78.
1: What was the? Uh, do you remember the situation with Flanagan? I mean, this is a guy who you know lit up the league and was like you know uh on his way, arguably for even a, something even greater in '79. But um, was it was it Charlton Athletic that was not letting him come back? I, I know a lot of the players that were coming from England were doing the three month in the NASL thing. Uh, I'm just wondering, perhaps if that was the issue, or the team men couldn't. Uh, Pay or whatever. I just, you know, curious if you might know why. Yeah, I actually, I actually,
0: I actually don't remember per se whether he wanted more money or, or the team or the team was asking more for the loan. You know, I, I believe that happened more dramatically even in Detroit with the Express with with, Tre- with Trevor Francis oh, because sure. he was it and, and even a bigger player, um, and I believe that had to do with with economics, um, but I can't tell you. Um, I, I, I remember, um, okay, I just Googled it. I'm being honest. I, can't, I couldn't remember. It says Flanagan got into a contract dispute back home with Charlton and ultimately with the team and themselves. So, um, and I guess I, it looks like they prematurely announced his return, but my aging brain doesn't literally remember what happened. But that, that was a, a major disappointment.
1: Well, it's got to be a huge but, shock.
0: Yeah, but I think moving the stadium, not getting not getting people back, um, ironically lowering the capacity, and, um, and and the NASL strike all conspired, and the team not doing as well on the field, all conspired to um, to to, uh, to hurt.
1: Yeah, I, I think a lot of people just 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 plain out forget that the NASL, uh, especially in its sort of explosive uh, late 70s uh, years, so dependent on. Uh, this is before it even was called the Premier League, but sort of this influx of of English talent uh that would literally be, you know, only for about three months. The NASL season itself was relatively truncated. I mean, maybe it was April to to August, and and you know, soccer bowls were happening in basically in, in August, right? The late August. I think largely because that was just the more convenient thing. And then it sort of elongated over time. Um look, give me a sense of of Lipton. Uh you, you kinda hinted at it before, right? But um, Based on your memory and, and what you've learned sort of since in your rearview mirror, wh- why do you think a company like Lipton T would be interested in buying, owning, and and then obviously promoting and activating a relationship with a soccer team? I mean, Warner Communications and the Cosmos as template. Okay. Uh, we see Madison Square Garden at the time with, or Gulf and Western, I guess, part, then owner of MSG with the Washington Diplomats. And we see a few others out there too as part of this massive expansion thing, but but how the hell does that happen? and then, by the way, the naming of the team too is is it's legendary uh, I think most people kind of got taken aback by like teammen um I just it doesn't seem logical on paper, but then again nothing lo- seemed logical about this league when you think about it
0: no I, I think that's right I mean the look one of the seminal things and and uh, you know Phil woosman said. Uh, you know, and of course, history, I always say that pro soccer in this country is run by the the Santayana rule that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And um, Rusnam, I'll never forget in 78 when they expanded and he said, you know, just a short time ago, you could buy an NSL NAS, franchise for $25,000. And uh, now it's now it's uh, increased 40, 40 times because it costs a million dollars to buy a franchise. And that's what, you know, cost in 1978. Well, of course, when I say those who forget the past, you know, by 1983, you could have had an NESL franchise for nothing as long as you were willing to, you know, um, uh, run it in the market and, you know, and, 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 um, you know take over the P&L. And, and so, um, but, you know, why did they do it? I think they saw Warner, uh, the success, and they thought it would uh, um, uh, expand their brand um soccer again you know w- looked to be the coming thing um it was a low barrier to en- barrier to entry and ultimately they thought maybe an asset that you know would appreciate a lot um uh it was an experiment um and um, you know uh, but I can't I don't really fully know the motivation I just remember you know being being happy that it was going to be a well financed team but as i said um there were certainly opportunity costs from um, you know some of the uh, endeavors and operations of the club, um, you know being run quote more efficiently out of out of New Jersey because it because it it was out of touch with with the fandom and how to reach the fandom.
1: Well, no nobody will argue that it pro- was probably one of the best logos uh, in all of the history of the North American Soccer League. Um, the uniforms I thought were especially great. That especially I think in. The first year, maybe it was for others as well. There was literally this sort of red letter T that sort of comprised the uniform, um, which was sort of subtle but also um, notable. Uh, I just I, you know, I, I just I remember vividly from it, and I'm I'm just short of being a uniform and logo nerd. Um, and there are other podcasts and, and, and blogs devoted to that, but I, it's it's it is probably in the top tier, if not in the top five of of all time NASL. Uh logos and uniforms and stuff can you uh remember sort of uh, your uh uh understanding of perhaps what I would call the beginning of the end of this franchise like when did you know what was can you remember or recall sort of the denouement of this and the ultimate abandonment for Jacksonville of all places and we can sort of maybe wrap up with that but um what when did you know and when did they know and and what what transpired because 79 obviously was a huge come down from 78 and and 80 was kind of probably make or break at that point right
0: sure sure i'm happy to do that just two quick things one important player i forgot is keith weller who was on the team sure i, I remember him he from, from some leicester of the ads city. too yeah. the
1: yeah. ad, the print ads for t yeah correct
0: correct and he was, he was i think from leicester city and he was he was huge and i i, I uh, forgive me for getting him he was he's right up there one two or three um, and also, by the way, even though it, the the name it had it had plausible double entendre. It wasn't just Lipton tea. It's the Boston Tea Party too, right? So, so so it it made kind of sense. Um, yeah. So what I, what I'll say is the I, I have distinct personal memories of that, and I'll tell you very quickly. So, in, you know, I started college um, uh, and uh, at Cornell, and in after the first season in. 1978 and and then came the fall the the spring of my sophomore year and you know they still wanted me right and 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 said you got to come home um, to be the to to stay keep this official score job and I wasn't going to give that up so I used to have to take a greyhound bus home you know from Ithaca um, um, every every uh, weekend uh, in the spring uh, for the games, and it was kind of a grueling trip, as a 12-hour trip because it would stop in Syracuse for three hours, and then you know Scranton or Wilkes-Barre, uh, and so then the GM Bob Keating came to me and he said, you know, we want you here, we want to do more with you, but we can't just have you coming home, you know, weekends. If you want to stay with us, you got to transfer back here. And so I actually transferred colleges uh, back home to Boston to be to be with them. I transferred here to Brandeis, and. um, uh, you know, my sophomore year. So I was a college player at Cornell. I had big, big, big disruption on me because I transferred. I had a choice of Brown or Brandeis. I picked Brandeis because I was told I wouldn't have to red shirt. And I still had to red shirt. So, so it turned out to the ECAC told me late. And, and so it was a big disruption to me, but it was worth it um, to be with the team. And, and then the 79 year when I did it, it was a disaster. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I should say I transferred at the end of, 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 of 78. So that, so, um, uh, I had been coming home in the 79 uh, NHL season I transferred for the fall of 79 and so in 80 after I, I had you know, been fully back the, the team came back to Foxborough Schaefer Stadium but a lot of the magic was lost and a lot of the players were lost and then there was a miscalculation um, uh, and I told you before about uh, um, New Bedford and Fall River where the the kind of makeup of the team was changed and they brought in two players from Sporting um, Keita and uh, Artur. you probably remember um, thinking that the Portuguese community would come out in huge numbers um, but again if I had been consulted I would have been able to tell them that Fall River and New Bedford were Benfica and Porto towns more than they are Sporting.
1: Interesting. So <laughs> yeah, so not you can't just sort of blanket say Portuguese. You had to get no. to the the elemental levels of their specific fandom.
0: Correct, correct, and plus that's not an automatic either. I mean, look at Chivas, uh, look at Chivas USA. You just just because you bring players in for the club, you like it has to be the right players, and 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 or again the quality of play has to be good enough, or you know almost there's there's pride in saying I wouldn't be caught dead there. It's not good enough soccer. So. Other than, I believe, a 28,000 fan um, game against the Cosmos, if I remember correctly, in 1980. 1980 was nothing, nothing like 1978. The Magic was not recreated. Um, and, um, but I remember Vince C- Casey valiantly, honestly, in the press box announcing, a game. I, I believe it was a game against San, San Jose Earthquakes in a big rainstorm that we had barely a thousand fans game and he announced it, you know, fans at the game and it was completely depressing, but, but he was valiant and he announced it honestly and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to announce the good with the bad. And the magic wasn't there anymore. And I had transferred colleges and, you know, that's when the NASL started to experiment with indoor. And we, we played in the, in 80 winter in the Providence civic center. And, I uh, uh, a completely excruciating moment. I was in the press box at an indoor game wherein it was announced that the team and officially announced that the team and was, were moving to Jacksonville and I was completely crushed because again, it wasn't Boston. It was a uh, larger outside events um, that could, you know, it wasn't Boston's ability to support the team. And, and, you know, the GM wanted me to you know move with them to, Jacksonville, but I wasn't going to transfer to the University of Jacksonville. And, you know, I, 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 I had already moved once and, you know, my college soccer career mattered and my, my degree mattered. So um, that was one of the saddest days, you know, in my uh, life uh, and uh, crushed, you know, second time, two franchises, you know, failing essentially, you know, at least in our, in my hometown, and then they went to Jacksonville, and I believe Dennis Violet, you know, and Ringo moved to Jacksonville, where I believe he still is. And, um, you know, and they, I think, had, you know, one initial um, uh, uh, welcoming year there. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the thing failed, uh, uh, and the league failed. And, and it was sad. And I obviously became attenuated to the, to the team, other than, if, you know, that player who, you know, Ringo, who I was close with and would keep up with. And ironically, um, what is the year
1: actually uh, when they when they folded? Do you know? Was uh, it before the league folded? The, the Jacksonville franchise? Yeah. I uh, I believe it was eighty four, and I think then they. Um, so they, they the last year they were in the NASL was uh, was outdoor in eighty two, and then they went down to the ASL for eighty three, and what then became the USL in in uh, in eighty four.
0: Okay, so that, but I guess I meant when did they leave the NASL because the reason I say that is, ironically, after college, you know, I joined the Baltimore Blast of the MISL, and Ringo, who I was still close friends with, he joined Team America in D.C., which Team America was the experiment to put a national, national team in one city after oh, the Washington sure. Dips.
1: Whole other whole episode to come, you betcha.
0: Exactly. So I was with the Blast from 82 to 84, and Ringo would come to see me, and I would go to see him you know, in, in, in DC. So he was gone from the team. And I just didn't remember uh, whether Jacksonville was an NASL team there anymore, but so, you know, the answer is no. And this was 83 where I, where um, he, he was with, he was with the, with Panagulios, Panagulios, I think who was was the coach then. So, yeah. So again, um, you know, I, I, I kind of lost touch because it was about, you know, making teams, uh, successful and um you know and 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 obviously my hometown successful and um you know but that was you know that was ultimately a sad chapter with 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 some great successes and memories
1: so that that indoor season of um 1980 81 uh which was sort of the NASL's second sort of official real full season that the obviously the MISL in in 78 79 had kind of really kind of kick started the whole idea of it being a a legit sport and, and a possible uh, uh, business-friendly uh, venture. I, I I think it's lost on people because I think um, most people look at the Jacksonville version of this team and team as officially beginning with that indoor season before they were ever outdoors in Jacksonville. But you're saying that there was at least one game that the uh, that was in New England before the team moved to Jacksonville, or, or
0: a- absolutely. If I recall. Listen, I, I was I was. Uh... At that point, 19, I think 19 years old, and I'm not ashamed to say I was sobbing, you know, in, in my official score seat at the press box. Uh, and I believe that game was against the Atlanta Chiefs, um, and you, but you raise a good question. Did they leave mid, mid-indoor season? Um, hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look right now. now.
1: I, I've looked. I, I'm not so sure. I just I know that the stats... And look, for whatever reasons, this this kind of stuff's important to people like I, us, um, for whatever reasons, and it's arguably uh, odd. But um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I, you can imagine what that season must have been like if that were the case. How does that work, right? You play a game or two in Providence, and then all of a sudden you're hustling over to Jacksonville because you're literally midseason, season and then you got to finish it out. I I, I think most people kind of just sort of look at the stats and go, oh, they kind of they started indoors in Jacksonville and then they uh, and then they uh, took to the field. Uh, I just regardless of all that, I'm just surprised. And I think a lot of people are, especially in hindsight, that they kept the team end name of all things. I mean, you made the case for New England and the Boston Tea Party. Right. But but Jacksonville, it's, it's to me, it's right up there in the pantheon of. You know, like uh, Utah Jazz, right? Like it's just like, uh, you know, and that that just has succeeded despite itself. But you know, uh, the interesting, curious, interesting, and yet another sort of uh, uh, wacky turn, I guess, in this crazy league known as the NASL.
0: Yeah. So, so what I can tell you for certain that they played at least one game. It was against the Atlanta Chiefs, at least one, and I and I believe that's where the announcement happened. Um, uh, so. What Wikipedia says is they, um, oh no, where is it? I'm sorry. It said, oh, here it is. They also played one season of indoor soccer using the Providence Civic Center for home games. Um, But then it also says right at the start of the 80-81 indoor season, they relocated to Jacksonville. So that absolutely does confirm what you're saying, which is they relocated mid-season. But, I can guarantee you they played at least one game there uh, where, and and it was announced and uh, I was inconsolable because I certainly didn't know that it was in the works that they were going to
1: Jacksonville. To All right. So aside from that abandonment, then, uh, and obviously you went to 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 Baltimore for a while, and that was great. So, but uh, uh, maybe just sort of wrap this up, and it's it's hardly sort of fair here, but. Um, It's clear that the sport of soccer really kind of never left you, right? But despite your, you know, the ending of your playing days and stuff, you continued to sort of have a a bond with this sport, literally all the way up to a few years ago, running for presidency of U.S. Soccer, right? So, you you give our audience a bit of a sense of of what you sort of uh, evolved to professionally in your life, and and how soccer has stayed kind of on your radar or are part of your life since. Um, Cause I could imagine that this kind of abandonment might <laughs> swear you off of the game at this point, right? Being so emotionally tender at that age and, and, and sort of being abruptly uh, sort of left sure. behind. Sure. Do
0: you want to quickly hear about why, why I stayed in the game? or doing uh, yeah, now? Okay. Okay. Sure. So now realize, I mean, this is, you know, my, my dad uh, who's looking down these days uh, um, uh, and I, I have to tell you that I, a proud moment yesterday because my two boys that are college soccer players now together, they've never played together in their lives um, at any level. Uh, My younger son, who's coming back from a a devastating knee injury, played his first college game yesterday and assisted on one of my older son's goals. So, um, you know, and what I posted about it, because we had film of it, was, you know, it's all started, you know, all started by my dad, uh, who came from Germany, Werner Gans, who um, started it all. Uh, so even though I was heartbroken, uh, you know, the bond, um, you know, my love for the sport and the bond with my dad was of course not abrogated in any way. So I became even more militant, more, more devoted to the sport and more militant about the NASL running their, their being, you know, having more of a, a centralized focus in, on teams that are going bad in markets that are good markets. So I felt more, even more that I had fixed it. Um, I had, transferred from Cornell to Brandeis precisely for a team that left. So I had more of a thought that it had to work. I unexpectedly had the red shirt, you know, after I transferred and then broke my leg playing semi-pro and then had a series of injuries that made my college career virtually nil. So I, you know, I secretly, uh, you know, ha- held a desire to, to, to prosecute my playing career and make it back from these injuries. I, very overtly said, it's not the sport, um, it's not the city, uh, you know, clubs just have to be run correctly. And so what happened is, you know, I, kn- I knew I was ultimately, or thought I was ultimately headed to law school, but uh, after I graduated, uh, I, I um, uh, uh, you know, decided that I wanted to secretly make it back, uh, you know, try to make it back, shouldn't say make it back, but try to make it back as a player. But more significantly, or more likely, try to use my experience and, and competency and understanding of the game to help make a, an American team, not you know, in a, long, a long-term way, successful in this country. And I was fortunate enough, after a long process that you don't want to hear the you know the whole uh, story, but ultimately, you know, we didn't have a team in Boston, uh, and the closest two teams, and this is 1982. Uh, to where I lived in Boston, were the Cosmos still in, in the NESL, and the Baltimore Blast uh, in the MISL, and I got I got front office offers from both of them. Um, uh, Tom Werblin made me an offer, Sonny Werblin's son from uh, the, the Cosmos, and the GM of the Bla- of the Blast, a guy named Mitch Burke, made me offers. And because of my secret dem- desire to make it back as a player. Um, uh, you know, I knew I would never be good enough to be in New York Cosmo, um, because I started so late, you know, also as a, as a player, I was a much better indoor player than I was an outdoor player because indoor soccer, you know, mastering the brain part of it, um, and the tactics indoor soccer's is, you know, m- much closer, uh, to hockey and basketball. You have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, four field teammates, uh, you know, at a time, you know, not your goal, goalkeeper, as opposed to nine when you're outdoors, So I was a much better uh, indoor player. Um, So I chose the blast over the cosmos because I was going to try to make it back. And, um, uh, and, and, uh, and that, that was a dream realized never want to overstate it, but I ultimately made it back um, from all these injuries to be signed, you know, uh, and a blast player uh, for six months before I was, you know, cut at the next training camp after there was an ownership change so that was a dream that really only mattered to my girlfriend who's now my wife and my parents at the time. Um, uh, but, but again, was, was, was a mountain climbed and then um, you know what uh, was a significant ultimately person in the front office under the GM. And, you know, we became uh, one of the more successful American pro soccer teams in this country. And to the, to this day, you know, that set some attendance records. Uh, You know, in 1984, the year we won the championship and became for at least an ephemeral time, more popular than the Baltimore Orioles, the year after they won the world series. Um, The um, you know, we, we had a parade at at inner Harbor after we won the championship, but that year we played to 97% capacity. Um, But uh, in 31 home games, that's not a record anymore, obviously, but we, we had 24, sellouts, which I, th- I think to this day for an American professional soccer franchise, um, or team still is a record. So that was an incredibly, um, satisfying, you know, uh, contribution, um, you know, the, the, the blast were the top team, uh, during, uh, um, my last year. Um, and, um, and, and one of the top teams from, you know, 82 to 84, when I was with them, um, the owner who, uh, you know, uh, liked me a lot. And so uh, he was a character, a guy named Bernie Roden. He, he sold the team in my last year. The new owner saw that I was the last guy on the team and one of the top guys in the front office. So he said, I want him cut. So I got cut in the first week of training camp. But um, the significant point was that uh, Bernie Roden um, sold this high-salaried uh, payroll team relative to that time for a profit, um, so we are we are one of the, the I should say we the Baltimore Blast of the MISL era, you know, circa even before me, circa 1980, uh, to, you know, 84, 85, you know, and I was lucky enough to be there, you know, for 82, 84. Um, we're a true true success story, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know, uh, I think things started to change for the MISL once we got awarded the World Cup in '88, and um, you know, we had USA cable network and CBS contracts, but I think at a certain point after the world cup was awarded, um, uh, you know, people said we got to get back to, you know, got to get back to the the real game, outdoor soccer. And, you know, again, mismanagement as well in MISL and ultimately that league, I think in 92 uh, closed up, up shop. But anyway, so that was it. And I, I had full, full, full of my uh, pro soccer, um, experience, uh, uh um, and I thought that was it. I'd be done. And uh, I went to law school at that point. Um, uh, and uh, after law school, joined uh, one of the uh, large uh, Boston law firms and just thought I was going to be an associate. And I would have no other soccer uh, um, uh, contact anymore or prof- professional experience with that. Uh, but lo and behold, at the end of my first year, um, senior Partner in the firm came to me and said, "Hey, we know your background. You know, one of our client, our, 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 two of our clients, because they owned it together. Um, one was Bob Kraft, one was a guy named Steve Carp. They owned Foxborough Stadium together. Then called Foxborough Stadium. You know, they want the World Cup in particular. Bob Kraft and Boston's bid effort is 29th and last. The quality of its bid effort is 29th and last of all the cities bidding for what th- was then thought to be 12 uh, bid sites." And, you know, they're close to pulling the plug. Really, it was Bob Craftmore who was interested. You know, um, do you think you can turn it around? And, you know, I'm like, uh, I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, later that afternoon, I was in Bob Kraft's office. Um, and so this is, I guess, 1990. Um, and the firm turned me loose for the next three years. Like 50% of my time was working on turning around the Boston world cup bid effort. So here I was back in soccer. Um, and, you know, I worked with a lot of people and we worked all together and, um, you know, the city was never ranked last, uh, but the quality of the bid effort was and ultimately 29 cities bid for what were not 12 world cup sites, but nine ultimately. And I'm pleased to say in 1993, obviously we were, we, we had turned it around enough so that we were chosen as a world cup site. Um, And so from there, it just continued. Um, You know, uh, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but, you know, Bob Kraft, uh, uh, you know, when he was considering an MLS investment, you know, asked me my opinion. Um, The first GM of the revolution uh, was Brian O'Donovan, uh, who was my old client. uh, as He was a senior executive at Foxborough Stadium. So I advised them in their first year. Uh, not about player, you know, not on the field, but about you know, I, I kind of helped them with the ball, the blast model of front office, um, uh, which I think was unique. And in terms of fan and corporate sponsorships and and all that, as you probably know, they were had the, even though they had one of the worst teams on the field there uh, for the first three years, they're the number two team attendance wise um, in the league. Which by the way proves again, Boston's a great soccer town because even though the team wasn't doing well, they, they had huge crowds at, at Foxborough stadium. So I did a little with the res and then uh, advisors asked me if I'd, um, advi- you know, in other words, friend advisors who were not lawyers, uh, asked me if I would help out, um, um, their players. And I never, first time I saw my name in soccer America as a, an agent after just having done the, the world cup, which I was most proud of, I didn't want to be known as an agent. So I said, I'm not going to be an agent. I'll, I'll help out, you know, as a quote lawyer um, your friend, you know, your, 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 your young friends. And so the first two players I represented were Mike Burns, um, who was on the national team. And then someone who was the Reds first round pick from Boston college, a guy named Paul Keegan. Um, so I, so I did that, but I personally didn't want to represent many players. Um, and, uh, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And, uh, and, and so I've stayed in the game. Um, my best friend, uh, from my time at the blast and I started a consultancy in the, in the mid two thousands, uh, uh, to the premiership. Um, we met with Richard Scuddermore And so we, we've done a lot, um, you know, uh, over there, uh, and, um, and, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, I, I was a player, I was in management, whether as a lawyer, um, representing players or management, you know, I've kind of, done it all in the sports since then. Um, And then, you know, so, and I continue to this day, probably, you know, a good 50% of my practice is soccer related, whether it's representing teams, um, players, clubs, you know, players on the pro end, or even doing stuff in this crazy um, industry, which is youth soccer, which is a big business and a flawed business um, and trying to always be a voice of reason um, it's a good 50% of my practice. And the last thing I'll talk about is, so, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm work, I've been working on stuff today in that sphere. Um, and the last thing just about running for us soccer. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I've been asked for a good many years to challenge Sunil Galati at the time. And Sunil was someone I knew since 1990 cause he was with the organizing World Cup organizing committee in 1990. And, um, There just wasn't a good government aspect to the fact that Sunil was about to run for his fourth unopposed four year term uh, for the 2018 election. And I had said no earlier. um, But, um, you know, after the Klinsman debacle, um, uh, people came around again and and my partners said, you can do it. And so I did it. And I was the only um, challenger to Sunil uh, uh, until that fateful night in October when the U.S. got knocked out by, you know, in Trinidad-Tobago. In fact, um, um, out of three, uh, three of the four voting constituencies, by our, our measures, you know, my campaign team's measures, we were winning and on our way to winning that election. But after the U.S. got knocked out, you know, um, uh, as you know, um, seven other candidates got um, the temerity uh, to run, and they all saw that Sunil was, in fact, vulnerable um, and after that, it became into, it became a almost circus the last four months of the election oh, because yeah. it was, it was crazy with eight different candidates. Um, but, but from that, you know, um, uh, my involvement has become even greater. Um, so in the sport, so I think it's been good. I achieved what I wanted, which was change. Um, uh, you know, at the time it didn't have to be that I ultimately won it. I wanted to, i always ch- try to do a, effect. affect Positive change in the sport, and my involvement since the 2018 election has only increased, and hopefully
1: positively. So here, here's the last question, and I think you're probably uniquely qualified to opine on this. So, given what we've, as we record this this week, with the the uh, quick demise of the um, very short-lived uh, Super League, and and what's happened sort of with money and the sport, I mean money in sports generally, right? But money in particular in the sport. And and MLS, frankly, right? Um, it's very interesting to sort of hear all of these issues sort of coming to to uh, to the forefront, like all at one sort of explosive time because you know, for every person that says, hey, twenty five years, MLS, lots of investment, long- term inv- investors, soccer specific stadiums, there's an equal, if not sometimes more vo- uh, vociferous number of people on the other side going, where is pr- promotion and relegation? it's 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 watered down, it's never gonna be competitive, it's too, you know, it's too corporately central. Um I, I just I guess I'm the question in there is what do you think the future of the pro game specifically is here in this country and then is it even juxtaposable to what's or is it part of uh the dynamic that probably doesn't go away over time as we see in this Super League this You know, money and separation and corporatization, frankly, of of the sport that you and I both sort of grew up loving, perhaps in a purer form, maybe in a naive, youthful way, uh, or maybe maybe actually. Um, What are your thoughts about the future of the pro game here in this country relative to all of that?
0: Boy, it's the last question, so I want to be concise. But if you're asking me to address pro rel, which became a big issue on the campaign, then that's a whole other show. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's so, just... I don't think you want... It's a sideshow, but it's an element. It? Right? It's an that's element. That's it? so I, it's not a sideshow. I think it's an element of the bigger issue. I, we don't have to get too specific. Yeah,
0: anymore. no, we don't have to get too... I mean, I, 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 I think Pro-Rel is... Let us just say quickly, it's absolutely correct that um, players who have to play to stay up uh, are hungrier. Um, that said, as we all know, clubs... Precisely because of the revolt of the fans this week, it speaks, that clubs are ingrained... They came out of the communities 120 years ago. They, they, every community has a club, um, and so if a club gets relegated, you know, if Charlton gets relegated, it, you know, uh, at the Valley, you don't get 27,000 fans anymore. Maybe if you're in the championship, you know, when they got relegated, but you'll still get 23,000 the next year. If the Boston Celtics or Pittsburgh Pirates were relegated, they wouldn't get, you know, uh, uh, you know, 32,000, uh, you know, for the, for, for the Pirates or, or the Celtics wouldn't sell out the Garden. The point is the structure is different. Sport, sports here were built on owners uh, buying um, uh, and investing in teams, and fans' uh, fans' allegiance is is different. Um, the The issue of the Super League, uh, it's it, 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 I, I think it's a mistake to say it's analogous to um, what they're trying. What, what happens in America? It, it, it's not that they were creating a closed league. Uh, or competition. It's that they were doing something further. It, it was, if you analogize it, it was like to say that there's the American League East in baseball, and there's the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Rays and, and, and the Blue Jays, and you'll play a whole season. But by the way, the Yankees and the Red Sox will make the playoffs every year. It was, that was, a, that was even a step further, you know? Um, so you, we can talk forever about, about pro you know, pro rail in this country has a spot um, you know in in the lower leagues and maybe ultimately in in the in the top league but it it, it it's um, um it's it is glib to just say it automatically should be for one to say automatically it should append to mls it it it, it ignores uh, the structure and history necessarily uh, of, of pro teams in this country. So it, I don't think it's completely analogous. I think it is important. I actually went on the BBC on Friday and and made this point. It is important to say what was even further than, than how things are structured here about the Super League that was so rejected by the, the fandom there. Um, uh, um, the future of soccer in this country, I, you know, I think MLS's challenge is in a lot of ways that the world is flat uh, and that you can get the best uh, game piped in here. Unlike, you know, the NESL, which was the competition was high. It was good enough. um, And, you know, you could get soccer made in Germany, tape, the condensed version and you know, Toby Charles and and Mario Machado, but they weren't live games Um, here. It's a flat world. Um, So, so, so MLS has, has challenges in that regard, Uh, um, you know, in terms of TV and TV money and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, To me, what, what MLS needs to do is to get the quality to be what I would call good enough. You know, Americans want high quality the most, and I do think that MLS will grow and grow in terms of fam- fan allegiance if it can get to a sustainable quality. I also think that you know MLS's challenge is you know is more TV money, like all all leagues, and and in order to do that, it's it's got to it's 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 got to you know in my opinion improve the quality. Uh, the fact that lately the emergence of the American player has really started to hit some semblance of critical mass um, does fit the current model of MLS you know, becoming a, 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 you know, a seller's league. And as Rory Smith of New York Times would say, you know, a league has to understand where it is, or a club has to understand where it is. You know, Leipzig is not going to be where everyone wants to wind up for the rest of their life, but it's a, a major um, it's a major post along the way, Ix the club, club I love and, and represent and, and, and I'm devoted to Celtic, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And MLS, you know, I think is going to view itself that way in the development of American players. And, you know, uh, uh, that, that is contingent on American fans understanding that that is a, that is a process that fans have to accept, Uh, you know, because, you know, the, here in boston we're still sore about you know babe ruth being sold to the new york yankees uh and 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 and, um you know the idea of of transfers which are really sales uh you know being part of american sport is something that a lot of fans a lot of american fans need to still get used to
1: Okie mighty thanks to Steve for a uh, wonderful uh, trip down memory lane. Uh, lots of great uh, nuggets of, of stuff in there. Uh, you can follow Steve Gans uh, on Twitter at Steve Gans2018. At Steve Gans, G A N S 2018. Uh, as we mentioned before, Steve is uh, a partner in the uh, law firm of Prince Lobel and, um, or is it Prince Lobel? I think it's probably Prince Lobel, is my guess. I'm sorry, I should have asked that, but uh, I'm sure he's screaming into his device now as to how to properly pronounce that. But um, uh, if you're uh, in need of his uh, corporate uh, legal expertise, uh, I'm sure you can backtrack it from uh, the Twitter feed and, and find his contact information there. Uh, and uh, while you're online and doing those searches and follows and stuff, why not do the same for us? We're at uh, goodseatstillavailable.com That little website will be sort of your... Uh, uh, I guess amalgamation of all of our previous episodes and we post them on there too, in case you want to, uh, uh, stream them from that site. If you want to share them with your friends or download them right from the site, you can do that. Uh, we've got great uh, imagery for most of our episodes. And of course it's the place when uh, we have a guest that has uh, a piece of media to sell like a book, for example, uh, or a documentary film uh, that you can easily click and purchase said, uh, form of media. Um, While you're there, you'll see our uh, various social media labels as well. You can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, You can also follow us on Facebook. There's a little page devoted to us there, too. Uh, Our weekly email newsletter. Yeah, you can subscribe to that from the website. Uh, Just uh, search up. uh, I'm not sure exactly what tab it's on, but you'll find it. Uh, just your name and your email address it's all you need and you'll get our little uh, update uh, either hours or a day or so before we uh, drop our episode you'll be the first to know on your block uh, as to when and what that's going to be for the coming week uh, our email address is hello at goodseats just uh, send us a piece of email that way you can do that too why not you why don't you we appreciate that uh, and of course the the best way to show your support for the, uh, for the show is to, to subscribe in your podcast feed or catcher or whatever device you use to uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, and while you're doing that, hey, why not a five-star rating? Why don't you? Uh, wherever you can rate and review, we appreciate that. That helps uh, other people uh, like you find the show and uh, be recommended to uh, listen to it and uh, hopefully uh, spread the love uh, that way. We appreciate that for sure. Uh, we want to thank, of course, our good pal dr jerry Payne, who uh painstakingly puts all of our uh, collective pieces together thank you kind sir as always and uh geez who knows what's uh, on tap for next week i don't even know but uh, i'm sure it'll be good at least i hope it'll be good uh until then we'll uh we'll look for you here this very same place same uh location and uh we appreciate your uh, support of the show uh until then please be safe get your shots if you haven't done that already and um Thanks so much again for listening. Take care.